Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education Pediatric Podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence-based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice. And now, here's Grand Rounds. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Grand Rounds. We have a little different view today. It's the exit on top of my head. We're not going anywhere. We're actually here. Some technical difficulties, but we've gotten really good at live TV. So uh, thank you, everyone here in the studio, for helping us. Today we have a, a really spectacular grand rounds about uh, our future. Uh, it, it, the title is "The Future of Population Health for Connecticut Children's in the State of Connecticut." Uh, and, and again, it's a little uh, a topic that we haven't heard of before. And, and this is new models for financing and child health improvement. We have two individuals that are really truly experts in, in this topic. Uh, and I'm going to introduce Dr. Crow. Dr. Cole will, will introduce uh, Mark Schaefer. Uh, David is uh, is the medical director for Connecticut Children's Care Network, uh, Connecticut Children's uh, Connecticut Children's and vice president for health initiatives at CHDI. Uh, his uh, curriculum is spectacular, and we're just very lucky to have him. Um, first and foremost, he was a uh, a pitcher for the for the Minnesota Twins, um, and back in the early '90s, I believe. Um, three years. So again, uh, to me, that's really cool. This first time I introduced a pitcher on Grand Rounds, although that's not what he's talking about today, although hopefully he, was, he will bring his bat sometime. Uh, David received the BA from the University of Toledo, uh, his MD from Yale University School of Medicine, a Master's of Public Health from the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University. He completed his uh, pediatric residency at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in Cleveland, and is an alumnus of the Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Program and a former Bush Fellow in Child Development and Social Policy at Yale University. Again, as I said, he was drafted by the Twins and he played professional baseball for three years. Uh, throughout his career as a pediatrician, a researcher, advocate, and nonprofit leader, David has worked to improve the lives of children and youth, and that's really what has driven him uh, throughout his life. Um, most recently, uh, before coming to Connecticut Children's, he served as the medical director of the New Jersey Institute for Food and Nutrition and Health, this New Jersey Healthy Kids Initiative at Rutgers University to help children, families, and communities to improve nutrition, physical activity, and health outcomes. At Rutgers, he was also the clinical the clinical associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics at, Robert, at Rutgers at Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, and an adjunct associate professor in the Department of Pediatric Dentistry at the same school. Prior to joining Rutgers, he further early childhood obesity, obesity prevention efforts as a senior program officer at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation as a former chair of the University of Toledo Department of Pediatrics. Uh, during his time as a pediatrician, David has provided uh, fabulous primary care. He's a primary care pediatrician at heart, uh, and he really has focused his life on underserved children and families, uh, and not only in, now in Connecticut, but New York, Ohio, and New Jersey. Uh, he has been a strong advocate for uh, really uh, emphasizing health for children, and we're just very, very lucky uh, that he joined us uh, a while ago and, and has really been uh, instrumental in developing, developing our population health and our clinically integrated network. You're going to hear him speak, and again, he'll, he'll introduce uh, uh, Mark Schaefer just right after that. So, David, come up. Thanks, Dr. Salazar, and hello, everyone. I uh, appreciate your time today. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and get started. Uh, first of all, I'd like everybody to know that we have no disclosures. Neither Mark nor I have disclosures. 
Our objectives today, you can see here, we're going to try to do two things for you as best we can. The first is to describe the Center for Wellbeing and Care Integration and its population health approach, but also identify some policy and payment model strategies to improve health and well-being that have potential impact and applications in Connecticut. So as many of you have experienced out there, uh, we are moving from a world of fee-for-service to value-based payment. And the care network, the Connecticut Children's Care Network, of which I'm the medical director, is one of those strategies to try to help practices make that move from fee-for-service to value-based payment. We're 37 practices in 47 locations around the state. We have over 200 pediatric providers throughout the network trying to make that move to value-based payment. So what are the advantages to value-based care? So one of the things that it does is it increases our flexibility in this, this the services that we deliver. So that may be providing care coordination. It might be providing access to community health workers. It also provides some accountability for sustainability and the maintenance of health of populations. And then finally, it gives us an opportunity to address the social determinants of health that have a significant impact on the health of the children and families that we serve. But it's important to note that true value, decreasing cost and improving outcomes cannot be achieved without a population health approach. So let me talk a little bit about what population health is. So at its most basic, population health is the health outcomes and the distribution of those outcomes within a group of individuals. So that seems pretty obvious. Uh, but what it is and what distinguishes it from value-based care is that it is a focus on well-being and quality of life. It brings that into the equation. And it includes activities that go beyond those traditionally associated with hospitals and primary care offices. So that might be investments in food, food insecurity, it might be investments in housing, it might be investing in some of those things, those social determinants of health that have a significant impact on the health outcomes of the populations that we serve. In addition, it addresses the needs of populations beyond those of the hospital's patient population. So a hospital may be housed in the center of Hartford, but we may be uh, serving populations in a population health strategy that go beyond Hartford into greater Hartford or even throughout the state. Population health can be looked at through the lens of the individual, the practice, the institution, and the community. And it requires attention to not only social and environmental determinants of health, but also the medical determinants of health as well. So in an effort to try to address population health, health here at Connecticut Children's, we developed the Center for Wellbeing and Care Integration. Now what you see here is not a redistribution or a reorganization of the entities of Connecticut Children's, but an effort to try to improve the synergy across the different entities 
that play a role in population health for children. So if I were to start at the bottom of this uh, schematic, you'll see really well-known entities throughout Connecticut Children's, like the Office of Community and Child Health, that has been working on issues of population health, of child health and well-being for years with great connections within the community. In addition, as I mentioned, the Connecticut Children's Care Network with its providers throughout the state and opportunities to interact with children throughout the state, as well as our care coordination, social work and case management teams that can bridge those two organizations in many ways, as well as improve connections between the practices in our communities and the resources outside the four walls of our practices. In addition, you'll note population health and predictive analytics, which play an incredibly important role in letting us know how we're doing and how we can improve. And then you'll see pediatric home health, which is another important part of improving population health and is something that's being built out by the organization. Part of the CWCI leadership are representatives from each of those organizations or those entities on the bottom of the schematic, including leadership of the organizations as well as key members from different programs of the Office of Community and Child Health, as well as leaders throughout the organization. Dr. Dworkin, Ryan Calhoun and myself have been leading the Center for Wellbeing and Care Integration and the conversations that we've been having over the last couple of months to try to build out this population health strategy that I've been describing. So what are our aspirations as CWCI, as the Center for Wellbeing and Care Integration? Well, first and foremost, we want to be a leader and a model in the move from a sick care system to an integrated health system that focuses on promotion of healthy development, early detection, linkage and referral, system that's family-centered, that's holistic in the care for children and families, and is built upon a foundation of health equity. We want to be a leader in advancing health equity and reducing health disparities. We want to be seen as a leader in pediatric value-based care. And in many ways, uh, we are right now within the care network. Many other care networks are looking to us for some of the things that we've been able to do. But we also want to be a leader in child health services transformation. And I'll talk more about that later in my presentation. But I want to emphasize uh, our efforts or our goal to try to transform child health services. We want to be a critical community anchor institution for our area. And I'll talk a little bit more about what that means and what that involves. And then finally, we are, but we want to continue to be a valued child health expert by state and federal public policy leaders. So that's what we aspire to, aspire to. Now let me talk a little bit about the practical. So what's our role exactly as the CWCI? So the first thing we want to do is set the population health agenda and goals for Connecticut children's. Second, we obviously need to prioritize our population health programs and the investments that we make in those population health programs with limited resources. We want to find opportunities for synergy 
while maximizing those resources. And we want to align our investments to succeed in risk-based contracts. Value-based care and the quality measures associated with them aren't going away anytime soon. So we want to be successful in that environment, but we still want to be looking towards the future and what's possible. We want to invest in child health services transformation to have long-term benefits, not just those benefits on a year-by-year -year basis that helps us meet our quality measures, but have long-term benefits for children and families. And we want to increase alignment on an advocacy agenda to meet our goals. So let me talk a little bit about some of our key opportunities or what we see as our key opportunities for the Center for Wellbeing and, Wellbeing and Care Integration. So first, we wanna grow as a critical anchor institution. So what's a critical anchor institution? So its focus is on community-defined challenges. The community defines the challenges and we focus on those. And it's more than just the sum of individual community engagement programs. It's part of the mission. It's our invested capital. And it's our relationships, not only with the community, but with our employees and with the vendors of our hospital and our health system. And ultimately, it permeates our organizational culture and it changes the way we do business as an anchor institution. An example of an investment as an anchor institution would be something like housing. And we've already done significant amount of work in this area through uh, entities like our Building for Health Initiative, our alignment with the Southside Institutions Neighborhood Alliance, SINA and their housing work, and the incredible opportunity that we have in the North Hartford Promise Zone with the new grant that Connecticut Children's has received. We also want to connect the dots, and this is incredibly important. And if you, if I can have you bring that mental picture of the schematic that I showed you just a moment ago, uh, we want to make sure that we expand our care networks access to the incredible programs that exist within the office for community child health programs like our care coordination, easy breathing, our clasp tools and healthy homes. And we recognize that that takes investment and human resources to do that. And we would have to make those investments to do those kinds of connections. Another important opportunity for us is, is within measures and metrics. So one of the things that we really need to do is advocate for meaningful pediatric quality metrics. So we have quality metrics in our contract, our value-based contracts in the care network. And they're focused on things like well-child visits, immunizations, hemoglobin A1C uh, testing for children with diabetes. We wanna make sure that all of those contracts have meaningful pediatric quality metrics. And ultimately that include measures with a longer horizon than just say a year out. So examples of that might be kindergarten readiness or third grade reading level or high school graduation. And you might think, geez, how do I do that as a pediatric primary care provider? Well, that might be in early detection and screening, referral and linkage for developmental delays. It might be reach out and read in your practices. These are just some examples of how we might have an impact on some of these longer term measures. We also want to adopt measures that require multi-sector approaches. 
So some of these are quite obvious. Infant mortality. Impact on infant mortality goes much, uh, much wider than just how we do how we take care of kids in the NICU. It has we can do the same thing for teenage pregnancy, multi-sector approaches in obesity, multi-sector approaches addressing suicide rates. We have the opportunity to adopt measures that require those approaches. We also can use, can use tools that show a return on investment. We're always going to get that question from insurers, funders, the federal government, just what kind of return on investment is there? And there's been great work done by our colleagues in Help Me Grow with a return on investment calculator that has shown return on investment for some of these kinds of investments. So child health services transformation is an incredible opportunity for us within the center. We have the opportunity to focus our healthcare reform efforts on child health services. And we all know, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to say this to an audience of pediatric providers. We all know that lower costs are associated with a focus on children and families, that the greatest impact on health from a life course perspective is investment in children. We know what works. We understand the efficacy of available and evidence-based innovations. We need to implement those. And we know that we can have a large return on investment for investments in early childhood over the lifespan. Child health services transformation includes a focus on a universal approach that attends to the needs of kids, of children at increased risk for adverse health development and behavioral conditions. And it's an opportunity to expand our focus with a broader vision of payment for achieving and a rewarding meaningful outcomes for children and families. And, uh, and that's just a bit of a teaser for what's coming up uh, in Mark's presentation around payment models uh, that we can be discussing. So I'll just leave that for a moment and Mark can pick up on that a little bit later. So a final and really important opportunity for us at the Center for Wellbeing and Care Integration is advocacy. Advocacy is a key component to everything we do in pediatrics, it's about promoting policies that promote healthy development, integrated systems, and connection with community resources while building the evidence base. We have a strong evidence base already, and we need to implement that evidence base, but we have an opportunity to continue to build that evidence base with policy. We also need to have policies that promote and spread sustainable value-based payment and delivery models that support population health improvement. Mark will touch a bit on that in his presentation. And then we want to have local, state, and national investment in specific sectors or initiatives. And one example of that is something that we've been discussing, which is a payment reform pilot with a child health first focus. So incredible opportunities for us in the Center for Wellbeing and, and Care Integration. And now what I'd like to do is turn things over to my friend and my colleague, Mark Schaefer. So I've worked with Mark since I've been here in Connecticut, and he's been an incredible partner throughout that whole time. Mark's the, in, Mark's the Vice President for System Innovation and Financing for the Connecticut Hospital Association. 
He served as the state's medical Medicaid director at the Department of Social Services, where he led the design and implementation of the Connecticut Behavioral Health Partnership, the Husky Medical ASO Initiative, and the Person-Centered Medical Home Program. He subsequently served as the state's director of healthcare innovation, overseeing a wide range of payment, care delivery, and insurance reforms, and launching the state's first quality scorecard. In his current role with the CHA, he's working to advance a sustainable healthcare delivery and financing system that fosters innovation and provides optimal health and health equity for Connecticut communities. And now I'd like to turn things over to Dr. Mark Schaefer. Thank you, Mark. Thanks so much, Dr. Kroll. Terrific introduction and uh, much appreciated and uh, really a great review of, I think, the opportunity we have before us and to really build on the visionary work that's occurred uh, at Connecticut Children's, certainly your efforts and Dr. Dworkin's and a host of others who've really been wise advisors to the state and to the Connecticut Hospital Association as we try to negotiate substantially more advanced financial models for supporting the kind of work that uh, you aspire to do. I'd like to talk a little bit about, as we think about what payment models should be, uh, it's important to understand uh, the limitations of the payment models that are out there today. So I'm going to walk back about a decade when healthcare payment reform around 2010, uh, pursuant to the Affordable Care Act, value-based payment models really took off. And at the time, there was a uh, there were frequent references to the unsustainable healthcare cost growth as measured based on the percent of the gross domestic product that healthcare service delivery occupies in the U.S. economy. And you can see that there's been tremendous growth from 1970 to about 2015 or 16 when this chart goes. And this is very familiar, frequently referenced, and a justification for why we need to move away from a fee-for-service, a pure fee-for-service method of reimbursing uh, healthcare service providers. And um, the uh, undergirding those value-based payment models was this concept proposed by one of the greatest secretaries of health and human services that never was confirmed, Dr. Don Berwick of the Institute for Health Improvement at the time. Don and his team proposed a triple aim goal in healthcare delivery and finance. And uh, at the top, at the peak is pop health, experience of care on the lower left and per capita cost on the lower right. And the intent, these this points on the triangle have been relabeled by many or misinterpreted by even more. Experience of care is intended to be. The, the outcomes of care is diabetes, A1C, or asthma, well controlled. Uh, per capita cost, how much you're spending per year uh, for each person. Population health is not about service delivery per se. The intent was really something that's been called total population health, which is closer to public health, which is what's the incidence and prevalence of acute and chronic illness in our communities? How significant are the health disparities? Uh, that's really, that's more focused on preventive health, uh, promoting health and well-being across the lifespan. And there's a couple of models that we have that have emerged as the leading models in the wake of the Affordable Care Act, both of which 
are confused with uh, this. The first one in, in particular is often mistaken for a payment reform that will get you to better population health, but in fact, it doesn't. So in this model, the ACO model, uh, population of individuals who use as a primary care of a health system or physician network has a population that's attributed to them. There's a projected total cost of care for the attributed population, and that total cost of care is based on how sick the population is. So if you have a lot of kids with significant health conditions, or you have and or you have adults with CHF, COPD, diabetes, uh, and the like, then you have a higher benchmark, and you have an opportunity to generate savings by taking better care of those sick people. And so the, the point here is that the savings opportunity is a function of how sick the population is. If you have a population that is 10,000, 25-year-olds without a health condition, there's actually no savings opportunity. So the, one of the important things to understand about this model is that this, uh, the, the most prevalent payment model today, which is a population-based payment model, actually the savings opportunity is based on having more sick people. And by the way, that first model is not very uh, suitable for pediatric care. Uh, the bundled payment model also isn't terribly suitable. And in that payment model, cardiac stents or hips or knees uh, procedures, the individual components of uh, an episode of care for those kinds of services are aggregated into a single bundled payment. And if you spend more uh, than that bundle, you lose money. And if you spend less, you make money. And so that is not a terrific model for kids because pediatrics is not a highly procedure-based medicine as, say, compared to care delivered to Medicare beneficiaries uh, later in life. So these payment models are focused typically on driving down price. Bundled payment does that particularly well and avoidable use, keeping people from using the emergency department or hospital services unnecessarily. And if our focus is on price or near-term reductions in avoidable use by keeping sick people stable, we're not going to get very far to achieving the objectives that I think Connecticut Children's and the team that David Kroll is part of are aspired to. So instead, uh, it's my belief that we should be focusing on health risk, which is a measure of the uh, prevalence of uh, conditions in the population as a whole, and that we should be measuring the health of the population and we should be rewarding improvements. And only by doing so are we gonna be able to create incentives to uh, combat, say for example, the extraordinary rise in diagnosed diabetes. Uh, as you can see, in 1950, from 1958 to 2015, there's been an exponential rise in the diagnosis of diabetes. As of 2016, 357,000 people in Connecticut are estimated to have adult diabetes, 12% of the population. More than double this figure are estimated to have prediabetes, which creates a reasonable likelihood, uh, I think, in uh, about 50% of the population with prediabetes that they will progress to type two. Diabetes mortality for blacks is more than double that for whites. So it's also a poster child for health inequity. 
and one in seven healthcare dollars is spent treating diabetes and its complications, which means our inability to get our arms around the drivers of diabetes uh, is part of what's contributing to the uh, healthcare trend. So there's so most of the focus of the payment models is how much you pay for a procedure or how much folks are using the ED and hospital. And as long as we're doing that, we're not going to get these uh, really root cause contributors to health risk trend. In Connecticut, diabetes alone is estimated to cost payers $3.7 billion. So a little bit about pop health trends uh, before we talk about the kinds of things we could be doing to advance uh, population health and also some payment models. Uh, the, uh, uh, you may have read that in the past few years, for the first time since life expectancy has been measured, we've, uh, we're seeing a drop in life expectancy at birth uh, in, uh, uh, since about 2015. Uh, not a good sign, and despite all our medical advances, folks aren't, uh, are now, uh, this, the current generation is not expected to outlive the previous generation. Life expectancy is, is uh, distributed in, inequitably. So life expectancy, which is a proxy for overall health and well-being, culmination of so many other social and health factors, uh, varies greatly by geography. Just in the greater Hartford area, life expectancy varies by 10 to 15 years, depending on which neighborhood you live in. That's in part a function of uh, poverty or the gap in wealth between different communities. Life expectancy is a significant predictor, um, uh, is predicted, uh, the evidence suggests it's predicted by income in the United States. And in addition, uh, income or wealth is not evenly distributed amongst communities of color. So you have uh, Black and Latinx communities that have a substantially lower net worth than white households. And so income is a contributor to illness and diminished life expectancy in the Black and Hispanic population to a greater degree than white. Though, of course, within the white population, depending on your income and where you live, you also share in those risks. Those risks are manifest, for example, in preterm birth rates, which uh, in this chart, you can see that non-Hispanic Black women are more likely to give birth to a preterm baby than their non-Hispanic white and even Hispanic counterparts. Now, this is also reflected in the uh, pregnancy-related deaths per 100 live births. You can see that uh, Black women are substantially more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes uh, and six times more likely than their white counterparts to experience severe maternal morbidity. Notably, Latinx moms are not subject to those same risks, which suggests that there are other factors that contribute to the uh, birth outcomes, maternal child birth outcomes that we see. Uh, uh, Lou and Helfon uh, in the early 2000s proposed the life course perspective, which suggests that there are unique disadvantages to which African Americans, Black Americans, uh, have been subject to and are subject to from the time of their birth, that is, risk factors and a paucity of protective factors that lead to a life course uh, that uh, sets up for poor health, 
generally, but also higher risk during pregnancy. And the lesson we think in terms of the life course perspective is that if we begin to focus on birth outcomes at the time a woman's pregnant, we're intervening too late to have the kind of impact that we would seek to have in terms of addressing those inequities. Another important consideration in terms of these rates of chronic illness uh, and chronic illness, diabetes was just one example, but whether it's cancer or it's depression, anxiety, PTSD, there's a range of adult health conditions that are a function of, that are uh, related to adverse childhood experiences, as this audience knows, uh, 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 I think, better than, than most. And uh, the adverse childhood experiences are very common in the Connecticut population. They're not, uh, they're not equitably distributed among the uh, different populations. So non-Hispanic white is less likely that population experience adverse childhood experiences compared to their non-Hispanic black and Latinx counterparts. And so thinking about how we can not only intervene to uh, address the protective factors that is that can mitigate adverse childhood experiences or that can uh, promote um, uh, or that can reduce the exposure to risk factors is an important consideration in achieving longer term uh, health and well being into adulthood. Both the New York Federal Reserve and the San Francisco Federal Reserve are very much focused on how we can uh, address health by using uh, new investment models. And uh, as she points out here, opportunities and experiences across the life course are influenced by the intrauterine environment, which in fact uh, affect birth outcomes and future health and social outcomes. Uh, but the experience of that, of the woman giving birth, the household environment from which she um, uh, has lived her life, neighborhood conditions, social and economic con capital that are the context within which she has grown up, uh, institutions and policies uh, that may uh, 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 be related to racial inequities such as redlining and segregation and structural ra racism, which is the combination of those factors. That is, we think about trying to take on uh, issues uh, like uh, maternal child birth outcomes, the health of children, even in the first several years, uh, one could as legitimately focus on the well-being of people who can get pregnant uh, early on uh, in their lives as it, it as it is about taking care of um, women once they give birth, for example. So in terms of uh, health, David Kroll has talked about the things that uh, Connecticut Children's has done both in the clinical care settings, but also the groundbreaking work that's been done in the Promise neighborhoods and, uh, and in Sina. And similarly, the Connecticut Hospital Association is focused on working with hospitals to move beyond downstream clinical care interventions to interventions that are focused on the social needs of individuals, such as identifying housing stability and domestic violence, interpersonal violence, and other life conditions to try to intervene to uh, reduce the impact that those factors have on uh, children and families, and focusing more directly on improving the community conditions, the uh, places that kids grow up today in Connecticut. One of the approaches that 
we believe more hospitals should be engaged in across the, uh, Connecticut and the, actually the CHA board has endorsed a statewide planning initiative that would extend the kind of work that Connecticut Children's has done with SINA and is doing in the Promise Neighborhood collaboration focused on hiring locally, sourcing locally, and place-based investing. There is a national healthcare anchor network of health systems that are doing this kind of work, and they have been able to create pipelines, hiring pipelines from communities that are economically marginalized. They've been able to move some of their considerable purchasing power to direct it to places that would benefit from economic revitalization, and they are able to invest in solutions to community conditions that are part of the risk profile of many of our communities. Another tool that hospitals have at their disposal is the community benefit process. Uh, and through community benefit, hospitals do triennial health needs assessments, and they formulate implementation strategies that they carry out over a three-year period. In my view, and I think the view of the community health directors, that work in this space. These programs are um, really set to advance to a higher stage of development and investment, including applying new data analytic methods to support the needs assessment process, but also the intervention process, enhancing the kind of community engagement that's done in the community benefit work, applying implementation improvement science, which mostly doesn't happen today in the community benefit process, and leveraging new financial partners to bring the hundreds of millions of dollars that are needed to make meaningful investments at scale in Connecticut on the community conditions that jeopardize family well-being. CHA is seeking to play a coordinated role around these statewide solutions. And we are, at this point, we're of the belief that by partnering with the hospitals and with the visionary folks at Connecticut Children's, we can create a constellation of interventions through community benefit and intentional anchor activities that can materially affect the root cause conditions that drive poor health in kids and adults. So how do you finance these kinds of transformative changes? One is place-based investing. I mentioned that as one of the methods of anchor institutions. And to give you an example, so place-based investing involves having a hospital take its investment portfolio, what it is investing uh, in cash and short-term equivalents in the open market, and dedicating a percentage of that portfolio to dedicating it to CDFIs, local lending organizations, with a focus on supporting food security issues or housing stability initiatives. And in New Jersey, Hospitals use this capital uh, in a more direct way. That is, uh, the New Jersey Housing and Mortgage Finance Agency has worked with hospitals around the state to co-fund development projects to provide favorable lending terms. And in doing so, they are taking on projects that generate a return on investment, although lower than the 7% or so that you might get on the open market but a return on investment nonetheless that is a means by which hospitals can influence community conditions, but not in a grant-making sort of philanthropic way. Another innovative way to finance the um, kinds of interventions that can improve health is called outcomes-based financing. It's formerly been called pay-for-success or uh, a decade ago social impact bonds. 
This solves for a problem that Dr. Dworkin has often described, which is that a lot of the savings to be had when you're working on child-oriented initiatives exist outside of the healthcare payer Medicaid system, for example, or commercial payers in other areas of state government. Outcomes-based financing provides a means to finance initiatives that can, uh, based on the expected return on investment, we're in the process of working with an investor today around a four-component model that would advance, as I was saying before, that would be focused on the health of people who can get pregnant through a four-component model, including the provision of diapers, which is a substantial means to impact income earning and assets, a medical legal partnership, which addresses in clinical settings the legal barriers that often interfere with the ability to achieve, say, for example, stable housing, and enrollment in uh, tax credits and benefits, say, through the voluntary uh, tax assistance program, and a financial coaching or financial mentoring model, which helps individuals before they're raising families get on a solid economic footprint so that they have the means to raise a family once they do get pregnant. So this intervention, which is focused on economic mobility, these kinds of interventions have been shown to address the question of neighborhood and built environment by enabling folks to afford different housing options, basically less blighted communities, and it also builds a social and community context that is conducive to overall well-being. The outcomes-based financing model uh, works by basically getting an outside investor, private equity investor, to fund the intervention of the sort that I just described. And government agrees, once certain outcomes are achieved, to pay that investor back. And what the outcomes-based financing model achieves is a socially impactful outcome with no risk to the service providers, because if the outcome's not, uh, not successful, it's the outside investor that loses invested capital, not the service provider. Finally, there's the question of Medicaid. And uh, this is a tough one because the payment models that you see around the country mostly do not support long game improvements in health. The bundled payment model is inherently flawed because not only for folks who are interested in child health, are these procedure-based payment models not likely to be uh, achieved in any volume uh, with kids? But in addition, the model is still based on having a lot of people who need hips, knees, and cardiac stents. So the bundled payment model depends on having a steady stream of people who need high-cost interventions. The population-based model, as you recall, is based on how sick the population is and whether you can care for them at a lower cost and keep people out of the emergency room or hospital. These are short-term deals. That is, you're paid for how stable or how much was spent for that patient a year out. And so there's a couple of significant things about this model. If you have in a particular area, let's say housing, uh, unsafe housing, rodent invested, has mold, there's a lot of drug dealing and that sort of thing. If you are a participant in the Medicaid PCMH Plus ACO program, you have very little incentive to fix that housing problem. Your goal is to move a family out of that uh, housing and another family then moves in subject to exactly the same risks. No individual provider 
has enough skin in the game, if you will, to actually take on basically the, the renovation or replacement of the substandard housing. In addition, as I noted, if you were successful, if Connecticut Children's was successful through, say, the Promise neighborhood type interventions, through anchor initiatives, through a focus on women before they become pregnant in order to create a more an environment more conducive to healthy children, the prevention savings, that is year over year improvements in the health of the population, those prevention savings accrue to the payer. They accrue to Medicaid. Medicaid resets the benchmark every year that the population gets better. If you have fewer diabetics, if you have fewer people, say adolescents with substance use and mental health problems, the benchmark is set lower. So the only savings that are shared are the, are the savings associated with caring for folks with the conditions that you are trying to avoid. There's a lot of money in the prevention side of this and overseeing a Medicaid actuarial study uh, while I was at the state before coming to the Connecticut Hospital Association, we estimated that the savings associated with a preventive agenda, the health enhancement community uh, focus on child well-being and healthy weight and fitness, we could generate program-wide somewhere between 1.2 and $1.8 billion over 10 years. But that requires that you have a 10-year span in which you're incentivizing and rewarding achievements. As you know, the good things that you can do for children and families during childhood may take actually uh, may take 30 to 35 years to materialize, although some of those benefits can already be observed of preventive health in five and 10 years. And so one of the questions uh, is whether Connecticut has an appetite to undertake a first in the nation shared savings initiative that's focused on capturing the value of preventive health. And uh, this last slide basically is an example of a program, a prevention savings program that leaves the ACO program intact to incentivize uh, better care for kids and adults who are sick, but it has an overlay where there's a bet with providers in a particular geographic area that as to whether they can drive down the health risk trend over a period of five to 10 years, by doing substantially more cross-sector collaborative work to achieve changes in community conditions. So in closing, uh, since that is my last slide, I will say that, uh, that uh, Dr. Kroll has been, uh, was instrumental in helping Medicaid through the Transparency Advisory Board to adopt long-term measures of child health that include things like kindergarten readiness, and fourth grade reading level and a reduction in adverse childhood experiences. Articulating and adopting those kinds of measures is the beginning to the conversation for what kind of financing model would help us to get there. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to present and I'm happy to take questions. And uh, uh, I think only one minute we have left. Thank you, Mark. And thanks for so much for your presentation. Uh, I think we may only have time for one question, uh, maybe two if we go quickly. Uh, so here, here's one that maybe I'll try to take on. Uh, clearly this is a model that can significantly improve health outcomes, but current pediatric training is focused on treating the individual sick patient. If you could redesign pediatric training to further a population health model of care, what changes, if any, would you promote? Well, 
Uh, big question. It's been a while since I ran a pediatric department and had a residency uh, as part of it, but I'll give it a shot. So I'd go a little bigger. Uh, I'd start thinking about who we're choosing to enter medical school, one. Um, I would think more about having uh, young people who have diverse backgrounds, who have a mindset of population health. Uh, I would look at the medical school experience and increase the opportunity for population health education and population health training because population health is not just a pediatric issue. So it doesn't matter where they end up, uh, population health is gonna be something on the horizon for them. Uh, in residency, I would expose them uh, to folks that are leading hospitals and making these decisions about population health. I'd have opportunities to, to have our residents interact with hospital leadership. I would definitely have more, and op more of an opportunity for our residents to interact with community members, with community-based organizations who are trying to make a difference in their communities. And then throughout this whole training process, I would focus on interprofessional training and interprofessional education so that we as physicians, as pediatric residents, as medical students can understand who the people are that we're going to be working with in our future, what they do, and how we can work together to improve population health. So long answer to a short question, but I think it's more than just uh, addressing this in the pediatric training programs, but uh, a much larger approach. And, and, uh, and then I would also add uh, presentations like this to folks that are in practice to help them learn more about population health is, a, is an incredible value. Thank you so much, Mark, for the time you spent with us. Thanks to all of you for your presence at Grand Rounds today and every week. Thanks for everything you do in our communities and best of luck for the rest of the week. Thanks for your time. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks for listening to Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education or online at connecticutchildrens.org slash podcast slash grand dash rounds.